There is nothing broken that he can't fix, that he can't repair. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you so much, guys and gals. Great job. Again, this morning for the second session, we're going to have Bruce Malone come up and share with us. Uh, Bruce, you can only be a stranger once. Once you're here, you're part of our extended family. So welcome, my friend. Let's give him a hand. Thank you. Well, that was beautiful. Tough, tough act to follow. Um, okay, for the um, topic I chose, and, and uh, Pastor Joey approved, I, I, I wanted to bring you a message on the awe of God. Now, now why? I've been a Christian, uh, out of college I was pretty agnostic. Um, I'm actually a uh, chemical engineer. I worked as a scientist for Dow Chemical for almost 30 years, so I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I've been trained in preaching. But uh, I became a Christian at about age 27. And since that time, and that's been 40 years ago now, I've watched our culture deteriorate morally. Um, they're, they're, the, the moral compass, the moral foundation is disappearing. We're living on a shifting sand of relativism as a culture. Not a church like this, but as a culture. And as you've watched Barna do statistics of the Christian church, we're three generations into leaving God totally out of the education and thinking of the public school children coming through our public education system. And 95% of all Americans are going to come through the public education system, and God is left out. He's left out of science. He's left out of history. He's left out of biology, geology, anthropology, everything. It can all be explained by natural processes, evolution. And that has enormous consequences in the thinking of, of the kids. And it's not immediate. We're three generations down the road. And I think we're just now really seeing the incredible absurdity of accepting a viewpoint other than what Joey just described, a biblical viewpoint of what's went wrong and why is it the way it is. Right now, we're just coming into that third generation. If a generation is about 25 years. And, and it was in 1960, 1962, they removed Bible and references to God and prayer out of our school systems. Um, and the generation right now that's, that's leaving high school and heading into college, when asked about whether they, what their faith is, what their beliefs are, whether they're going to be attending church, only 14% of that generation have any intention of coming into a Christian church. And then when asked why, they said, the number one reason, I don't believe what the church teaches. That's the number one reason. Why would you spend your time and money in a place where you don't believe what's being taught? That's the culture we're heading toward. And we see the consequences with, with the craziness of thinking men can become women and women become men. The most biologically established fact in the universe, we have 100 trillion cells in our body. And every single cell tells us whether we're a man or a woman. And no amount of cross-dressing or, or hormone treatment or surgery will change a single cell in someone who wants to live in fantasy land. And it's a sin just like any other. It's denying what God has done when he's made us. Denying that he's in charge will not lead to more contentment and happiness. They'll be taking hormones for the rest of their life trying to live in fantasy and deceiving their body what it actually is. 
And that's not unkind, and it's not unjudgmental, and it's not hateful. It is truth and reality. Now, we live in in a, a, a time when more and more people are losing the belief and the faith and the desire to trust and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We do. God has put everyone in this room at this time in that place. For such a time you were made. And you got to look at the culture and say, why? Why are so many walking away from what is reality and accepting what is fantasy? And I've come to the conclusion they've lost their awe of who God actually is and what he's actually done. They've lost that awe. These children standing up here, the little, the little ones up into the grade school area, you don't have to convince a child God exists. They see a flower or a butterfly or a bee, and they know it didn't make itself. They're in awe of the beauty and the wonder and who's behind it all. But we're, it gets trained out of them. So that's number one reason. Our whole culture is set up to train the awe of who God is out of it as you're looking at sunsets and stars and the glory of the universe and the intricacy of life because they think it can all be explained without God. But there's an even bigger reason. It gets beaten out of us because we live in a fallen creation. What is wrong with this world? We see natural disasters that kill innocent little babies and children. We see birth defects that create incredible pain and sorrow. We see deaths that happen for no reason. We have relationship problems. We have financial problems. We have health problems. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations and problems. And if you don't have them now, you will soon. It's going to happen. And it just beats us up. So what's the solution? Well, what I'm going to talk about is part of it. I spent the first section in the book of Genesis, which, which like is the start of it all. Where did we all come from? But I'm going to take you to the second greatest creation book in the Bible for the sermon time this morning. And that's the book of Job. Let's see if I'm on. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, historically, having been written. And almost all the Bible experts, and I'm not a, a Bible historian expert, but I read extensively, and there's pretty much wide agreement. If you look at when the books were written, people think of Genesis as the oldest, but Moses pinned Genesis, probably based on information that came down from Adam and Eve who walked in the garden with God who revealed truth to him, passed them on to their sons, who passed them on to their sons. They ended up in the hands of Noah. They were probably considered sacred, factual, historical documents. And as the years went by, I think they ended up with the Egyptians and Moses. And, and, or, or God may have just given him divine revelation. But I think that's the more logical thing. But he wrote those books about 3,200 years ago, right in that time frame. Job, I believe, was written about 4,000 years ago. And the Bible puts the worldwide flood about 1,600 years or 1,500 years after creation, about 4,500 years ago. So about 500 years after the flood is when Job lived. Now, longevity, human longevity has dropped. The Bible clearly teaches that the early human beings lived for eight and 900 years. And that's totally scientifically logical. Because Adam would have been created perfect, 
the deterioration of humanity and life did not happen until after Adam sinned, and he wasn't immediately, everything was just destroyed, I think genetic mistakes start to build up. And every generation is a copy of the previous generation. And every time DNA makes a copy, there are little mistakes called mutations. So your children are a little worse than you, and their children are going to be a little worse. Your parents were a little better. Early on, there were almost no genetic mistakes. People would have lived very, very long lives. And the whole environment of the earth changed after the flood, and there was a lot more radiation from the sun and a lot more issues, and the deterioration happened even more rapidly. But Abraham lived in the 200-year range, and Job lived in the 200-year range, and those guys lived about 4,000 years ago. And Job has more references to ice and snow than any other book in the Bible combined. And there would have been a guaranteed ice age immediately following the worldwide flood. That's where the ice age fits into earth history. Didn't happen 200,000 years ago. There haven't been 17 ice ages. That's all misinterpretation. It was an absolute unstoppable consequence of the flood after the flood. So that shows up in the book of Job, which was written close after the flood. But it also addresses this issue of pain and suffering, but in a way that we wouldn't necessarily expect. We're going to talk about that. And it provides this ultimate solution of where we look for the problems of life in a way we wouldn't necessarily expect. Now, I'm going to give you a little recap. I suspect, well, I know, you're a well-taught church, but Job is a phenomenal book that God blessed us with for really, really neat reasons. Here's, here's the account. It's not a story. It's actual factual history. And all the writers of the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, refer to it as actual history. Job was like the Bill Gates of his day, okay? The richest man on earth. But he was also called by God the most righteous human being on the entire planet. Phenomenal man of God. He, was, he had seven sons, three daughters. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, an enormous household of servants and helpers. Uh, he was called the greatest man in all the East, okay? Incredibly rich, incredibly wise, incredibly compassionate, a, a world political leader of his day, um, and he followed God as, at the best of, of his ability, okay? And God pointed him out to Satan as a man who follows me. So there's Job. What happened next, Job suffered more than any human being, in my opinion, that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ as, as God, as man, who took the punishment of every human being simultaneously on himself. His, his emotional, intellectual, spiritual anguish was unimaginable. But Job lost all the wealth in a flash of an eye. Can you imagine? Everything you own, gone. You are totally destitute, totally without any resources. The very next day, there you were the, being the richest man on earth the day before. All gone. You lose all of your children. I can't, I have, we have four children. I can't imagine the pain of losing one of them. But instantly, you lose all your children. They're gone, 10 of them, completely gone. And then you lose your health, the mo an unimaginable pain. 
he had oozing, breaking, bloody blisters from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. You get the picture every inch of his body to the point the only relief he could get from the agony was to take a broken piece of pottery and scrape himself so there'd be more pain than the boils. And it wouldn't go away. Day after day, week after week, that's the picture you're getting of this man. All at once. And he can't understand any of it. There's no word or revelation for God of why it's happening. And then, I think this was the biggest test. Well, at that point, you know, in the midst of all that, well, I'm just going to go into it. His friends, colleagues that he knows come, and they spend 35 chapters back and forth trying to convince him that if he'd have just obeyed the rules better, if he'd just been a better person, none of this would have happened to him. And if now he'd just go obey the rules right, he could get redemption from his problems by doing the right stuff. Works salvation. That's what that whole section is about. If we just be better people, if we just obey the right rules, if we pray enough, if we do things right, we will be all right for eternity. And Job refused to admit what he knew was a lie. He knew he wasn't perfect, but he also knew he'd done his best to try to do what God wanted him to do. So he, he, he passed right to the very end. Hey, I want to lay out the picture to help you understand what's going on here. So in the midst of all this, in the, uh, Job's response to his loss of finances, his loss of children, emotional pain, his loss of physical pain is, naked I came out of my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord took, takes away. In spite of our circumstances, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now his wife was also in unimaginable emotional agony. And her response was, curse God and die. Now, I, I, you know, all of us could go there. I can understand that. I don't condemn the lady. But look at the difference between one who knows and trusts God to the depths of his soul and one who isn't there yet. And in all this, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. And in the midst of this conversation where he's, the world is trying to get him to accept that it's up to him to bring his own solution and salvation. Job makes this statement, one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture. I know, is his response, my Redeemer lives. The one who will save me lives. Not me saving myself, but a Redeemer who will redeem all this. And that he shall stand in the final days upon the earth. There's Jesus Christ right there in the Old Testament. Isn't that phenomenal? In the midst of a righteous man's agony, he's looking to God. That's his focus, not himself. Now, not that he's not in despair. He said, I wish I'd never been born. He cries out, why, God? When is it going to end? Why is this happening? But he doesn't deny God. Now, after that's all done, God brings the longest monologue to mankind of any place in the whole Bible. For three solid chapters, God talks and talks and talks and talks. And he never answers the questions Job is calling out for an answer to. Why? 
Why was I born? Why the agony? Why the pain? God never answers it. Instead, God starts, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, tell me if you have understanding. Right to, right to Job. He's talking to Job. If you're, if, you know, you're asking for answers of why this is happening, if you know how to, where, where everything came from, you ought to know the answer to that. And at the end of Job talking about, you know, the, the stars and the universe and the planet Earth. By the way, there's tons of scientific insights in the book of Job. All about this, the Earth floating upon nothing. That wasn't discovered for another 4,000 years. That The Earth just floats there in the middle of space. The, the hydraulic cycle, the animals, the plants, the instincts. He specifically and graphically describes the most massive animal that Job has seen that he has made and it sounds exactly like an apatosaurus dinosaur and fits no other animal ever created. The word dinosaur just hadn't been invented. It was called a behemoth in, in biblical language and dragons other places in the language. But those were made along kind with man and he describes all these things. Here's Job's response. After God does this three chapter monologue of look at what I have made, 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 look at what I've done. Job's response says, I know you can do anything, as God has talked about creation. And not even any thought can be withheld from you. He knew the character of God. Job knew God. I have heard about you with my ears. That was before God had described all this stuff. And I highlighted this because it just jumped out at me a few years ago. But now mine eyes have seen you. Now, did God physically, as a physical form, stand right there in front of Job and give him this speech? No. But somehow God spoke to him. So why does Job say he's seen God? He'd heard God speak to his mind. He'd seen this stuff revealed. This is an Old Testament statement that when we have seen what God has made and know that we know that we know it could never, not, an, not a molecule could be there without him having made it. It's like we're looking at the very character and nature of God. Then we jump to the New Testament, and it says we are without excuse for knowing that God exists because we can see his nature and his power by looking at what he's made. We can literally, that's how we can see him. See, we philosophically, religiously, with faith, we can't, tangibly touch and feel but when we look at creation we can see his intelligence his creativity his compassion and his nature and we can know that he exists therefore we have no excuse for dropping into despair because we can know time is part of the physical universe time space energy and matter time didn't exist before god created the universe time is literally affected by time and matter and acceleration. It doesn't even move at the same speed in the same spot. It's part of creation. And since creation is a box and God is outside the box, God is outside of time. You know, the best way to understand all these prophecies and all of these predictions and all this foreknowledge of God is that since time is part of the box, it's like God is in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And he can spin 
hours listening to us in our agony and our hopes and our desires and our needs and just be like the closest friend you can imagine right there listening to us and he hasn't given up a bit of his time. He can spend that same time with every other seven billion people on this earth. That's the nature of God. And that's why we can trust him when we're going through problems. Because you start to understand creation and his nature in accordance with creation. And when we as sinful human beings, because we brought death onto ourselves, we brought death into creation. Had death not existed, we would have we lived forever physically without dying, but we would have been forever separated from God. Another sermon I hope to bring sometime I call the three most significant events in all human history. And it really starts to dwell into this. But when we as sinful people are really in the presence of God, look at our response. We abhor ourselves. We understand the depth, the, the depravity of our sin. And honestly, until you get at least partway there, you have no need for a Savior. Until you realize how sinful we are, why do you need a Savior? That there's got to be that realization that has to come at some point. In the repentance in dust and ashes. So here's the lessons from Job. Oh, let, it wraps up. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life more than the first. Uh, he, he passed every test. And he was given twice as many sheep, twice as many camels, twice as many ox, twice as many donkeys, twice as many everything of his physical possessions were doubled, but he was given just 10 more children. Why didn't God double Job's children? Isn't that interesting? He doubled everything else. Why didn't he double his children? It's a trick question. He did double his children. See, we're trained that when you die, you're just gone. No, when you die... It's like stepping through a door into another reality, a real, true, eternal reality. And you're either going to spend that eternity with God or you're going to spend that eternity separated from God. But you're not gone. If Job had been given 20 children, it would be the same as saying those first 10 children never existed. But that's not true. Their soul and their spirit are eternal. It's just their physical body that's gone for a season until God replaces that too. That's just a phenomenal understanding from the Old Testament. So pain and suffering is not caused by God. We brought this fallen creation upon ourselves so we wouldn't live forever separated from him. And in a fallen creation, there's going to be pain. There's, we're going to die from something. There's going to be suffering. And God will allow it, and he will use it in our lives. If none of us ever suffered, how would we ever have empathy? How would we ever build our endurance? How would we ever build our character? God allows it for those purposes, and he says, trust me. And when we do, it will be rewarded with our character in this life and with eternal life as we trust what he's done for us in the next life. Job ends by reminding us this life isn't all there is, and people aren't just gone when they die. He didn't have to double the children. He just, he did when he gave them 10 more. And focusing on God, and a lot of that's a spiritual discipline, but the only tangible part of it is focusing on what he's made. And that we can see, we can hear, we can share, we can touch, we can feel. And God spent his longest monologue talking about the tangible stuff he'd done. Uh, not that the spiritual stuff isn't even more important. But it's, this is really, really useful for us. 
Because that allows us to focus on him, knowing he did it, and it helps move us past the suffering of the moment. So this isn't just an intellectual exercise when we're talking about creation. It has a lot of practical applications in this fallen world and the life we go through. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to spend the last half, two-thirds of the lecture just looking at some of these things God has made because they're just awesome. And I think we ought to reserve that word for God and the things he's done. Absolutely awesome. And I'm going to start with a wee little one. It's, it's a creature called a sea sapphire. And by the way, there are four different 365-day devotionals, and these books are filled with the kind of creatures I'm about to show you, along with things from history and parts of our body and, and things from chemistry and biology and fossils and all sorts of dinosaurs and stuff. But the creatures, people just love them. Now, this one happens to be on January 5th of um, the book I give away overseas called Have, Have You Considered? And this is what it looks like when you shine the light on it under the ocean. Now, it's only about a fourth of an inch long. It's called a sea sapphire because it's a beautiful sapphire blue color. Now, the reason you see color, light coming from a light bulb or the sun is, is, is the combination of the seven colors of the spectrum. And when they're all combined, it looks white. But as that white light hits you, like my pants are, are gray, the, whatever's in this fabric absorbs all the colors except the part of the spectrum that looks gray, and gray bounces off. If it's red, it's red that's bouncing back. So that, that blue sapphire, the, it has a bunch of little tiny scales like a butterfly, microscopic in size, and they absorb all the colors except for blue, and blue bounces back. But there's a whole series of scales, okay? There's a set here and another set and another set, and they're exactly the right distance apart so that those other colors, they're absorbed or passed through, and they'll go right through it. Like, a sh like light will just pass through a sheet of glass, okay? They'll go right through it, but blue bounces back. But when this little creature turns, the wavelength between the scales changes, and now every color of the spectrum passes right through like it's passing through a winter window glass. Now, the inside guts of this creature is also like a really clear trans translucent fluid like the fluid in our eyeball, really clear. So it, once it turns, its scales become transparent, its body is transparent. Now light will pass right through it, bounce off the ocean bottom and bounce back. It becomes invisible. God created the superpower of invisibility for this creature. Now watch this little film. It, it, it goes through a little loop. And it, you'll see it kind of in front of you, and then it turns, and you see the ocean bottom right below it. It turns invisible. Watch this. So there it is, as soon as the film loop starts, and it just turned. Did you see that? It became invisible. Now, isn't that awesome? I mean, I, I love these superhero films, and here God's the one that came up with it first. He created the power of invisibility for this little creature. Now, Everything has to be perfect. The wavelength that bounces back has to change when it turns. Its fluids have to be totally transparent. The distance between them have to be perfect. The, the shape of them have to be perfect. The composition of them have to be perfect. And just a little change step at a time, it would never get there. It, it all had to be there all at once. So it's just one of those things you can look at and say, wow, that is so cool. Now I'm going to talk about intelligence. 
we consider ourselves the most intelligent things here on planet Earth. And God made us in his image, and I have no doubt that's true. But I scientists have been studying honeybees for, honestly, since the time of the Egyptians. But in the 1960s, they discovered how these little bees and their brains are the size of a grain of sand can communicate to tell other bees how to find, like, where there's a bunch of really good flowers. They'll fly back to the nest, and I'll show this to you in a second. They do a little dance, and it tells the other bees where to find it. Well, about 20 years ago now, in the early 2000s, some scientists from Princeton University, they decided, well, let's see how quick bees can learn a new behavior or how fast they can communicate to, to, to when something changes. So they came up with this experiment. They put bees from a certain hive in a field, and then 150 feet away, they put a source of, of really rich nectar. And then they somehow tagged the bees in a given hive so they would know it came from that hive, like, probably radiation or something. And they timed how long would it take once one bee from that hive shows up, how long would it take for that bee to fly back, tell the other bees where the honkatree was, and then other bees to show up at that flower? So when a bee showed up, they started the stopwatch. Well, what happens is that little bee flies back. This is the bee that found the nectar. And he flies into the hive, and he starts wiggling his butt. Okay, he's just wiggling like this, okay? And then he walks around in a certain pattern, wiggling his behind. And all the other bees, they're just watching. Oh, what's he doing? What's he doing? Okay, well, this is what's going on. And this is what scientists figured out. The bee finds the flower. He notes what the angle is from the sun to the hive and from the hive to the flower, 115 degrees. Then he goes up and he lines up with the vertical direction of the honeycombs, 150 degrees, 15 degrees, and he dances in that direction. That, they now know, tells them, I've got to fly in that direction to find the flowers. Pretty cool, huh? Then, if he goes around in a figure eight, it means that the, f the food source is like less than 100 feet away. And if he goes around in a circle repeated times, it tells them it's more than 100 feet away. So they know how far to fly, and they know which direction to fly, and they go find the nectar. Started the stopwatch. Ten minutes later, bees from that hive showed up. That's pretty cool. Now, here's the evolution question that we've got to learn to ask. So w when that first bee found, found the, the, the nectar, and he went back to the hive, and he starts wiggling his butt and walking along the honeycomb, how do the other bees know what he's telling them? It's like, oh, George is having an epileptic fit. They're not going to know what he's telling them. It's going to be meaningless. God had to have programmed it in. They, 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 would, they, they wouldn't have a clue. It all is programmed. All these instincts of all these animals, they're pre-programmed by God. So then the scientist, whoops, th this should have been four different slides. Then the scientist moved it. 300 feet away, started the stopwatch when one shows up. Ten minutes later, they showed up. Wow, doesn't seem to be affected by distance. 450 feet away, in the same line, same thing, ten minutes. 600 feet away, in the same line, ten minutes later, they showed up. So they did it one time, they did it two times, they did it three times, they did it four times. Then they moved the nectar another 150 feet, so it's 750 feet away. They walked down to where the nectar's at. They turn on their radar, their radiation detector to see if the bees are there. The, the nectar is surrounded by bees from that hive. Those bees had seen the pattern. 
They'd calculated the distance, and they were there waiting for them to show up with the food. They didn't bother to go back to the hive. Isn't that interesting? They'd outsmarted the Princeton scientists. And that wasn't necessary. It, it's like it, that's the intelligence God put into these creatures. See, when we see adaptation, when we see change in creatures, it's called evolution. They call that evolution. Well, dogs, you know, learned a new behavior or some salamander crawls into a cave and goes blind and now it has an advantage because it doesn't have to try to use its sight to figure things out. What well, turns out, it's programmed into the DNA, and if that same fish comes or salamander comes back out of the cave, within a few generations, they have their sight back again. You see, God built into the biological world the ability to analyze an environment, modify its behavior to survive better in that environment, and become a variation of the original creature, but it's all pre-programmed. It has nothing to do with evolution. It's just called evolution. And we've never seen a different body structure change into a totally different body structure of a creature because that would require new information that wasn't there to begin with. So all this stuff called evolution and given examples of variation and modification, it doesn't explain anything. It just shows that creatures can vary because they've been programmed and built to do that. This one I love. This one we use in all these overseas schools, especially where in the South Pacific where we're on these islands surrounded by water. This guy is a kind of a superhero too, the Oopu fish. He can do what no other fish in the universe can do. And I think there's only life here on earth, by the way. And there's biblical reasons to think that would be true. And we've never seen anything anywhere else. So anything else is just faith, faith and fantasy. Turns out that fish lives in salt water. And like a salmon, it has to lay its eggs in fresh water. But it lives off the, only off the island of Hawaii, the big island in Hawaii. Now there, there's... Where it lives, there's only one source of fresh water, and the fish only live in this one area around Hawaii. And if it lays its eggs in the salt water, they're going to hatch and they're going to die, and they'll be extinct. In, in, no more generations, it's dead. It's got to lay its eggs in fresh water. If it lays its eggs at the bottom of this waterfall, and the ocean's like out here somewhere, so say it lays its eggs here, that water gets flushed out into the ocean, and the eggs die. It has to lay its eggs at the in the stream at the top of a 420-foot-tall waterfall that's dropping right down through midair. How's that fish from the ocean going to get to the top of that 420-foot waterfall? It's kind of cool, isn't it? Now, when I ask kids in, in Fiji, uh, I ask them to shout out answers. I will always get someone shouting out, it flies, because they've heard of flying fish. Except flying fish don't fly. They glide. They've got wings designed by God to give them a different way to, to survive in their environment. They can jump out of the water when being chased by predators, and they can glide up to 100 feet, but they can only go about 10 or 20 foot off the water's surface, and then they drift back down in. They can't fly. They couldn't get 400 foot tall. Some other one also often say, well, maybe it climbs. I say, fish don't have legs, you know, kind of like maybe Spider-Man, and they'll laugh. And, and by the way, I love doing these assemblies. We'll have as many as 2,000 kids in an outdoor arena. And when they laugh, they just, the whole auditorium fills with laughter. And I love it. It's okay to laugh. Um, and I tell them, because they've all seen all these American movies, I say, well, you got, you, you got the right concept, but you got the wrong movie. You know, instead of Spider-Man, we're going to do Mission Impossible, where Ethan Hunt climbed this big building with suction cup gloves. 
And that's what God put on this fish. And I've got a big suction cup. We'll stick to the front of us at this point. And I say, this is the only fish in all known fishdom that has a perfectly formed, perfectly functioning suction cup on its stomach. And two of its fins are fused to be a suction cup. And if they were the least bit wrong, like how do you slowly evolve a suction cup if you didn't need it? It's just this flapping disadvantage that's going to cause you to have a disadvantage and get caught by predators and you're going to go extinct. And if you did need it because you had to lay your eggs at the top of this waterfall, then it, the whole time you need it, it's a half suction cup. It doesn't work and it won't get you there. So the fish will go and stick itself to a wall. Go ahead and play this film. Now, this is a, there's, there's other fish that use their mouths. Okay, these ones are similar. I couldn't find a movie of the one that has a suction cup on its stomach. Using mouth and pelvic suckers. But they use their mouths to climb up waterfalls. While some other fish species are known for their waterfall climbing feats, none of them jump onto and over dry rocks like the rock climbing goby. And none of these other ones will climb 400 feet. They'll just climb a little bit up, a little way. What is it that drives okay, rock climbing Come back to the beginning. So evolution can't explain it. Makes absolutely no sense. The fish will take anywhere from two to five days to slowly shove itself and stick and shove itself and stick and shove itself and stick and climb that 420 feet, jump in the stream, swim upstream, lay the eggs. They'll become little fishlings and get flushed back down into the ocean, and then it repeats at the next generation. So even if it had a suction cup, how would it know what to do with it? See, it's all got to be there at once or nothing works. Evolution does not work scientifically or logically to explain these things. They're there so we'll have the awe of a God who would make these things so we would know he exists, so we would know we can trust him. Now, marine iguana and kind of moving up in size of animals this guy only lives this particular one only lives in the Galapagos Islands and they eat vegetation they're vegetarian but he only eats seaweed he doesn't eat anything on the land problem is the island he lives on is surrounded by a coral reef and there's sharks that come right up to the edge of the coral reef and right into the coral reef and they just have a smorgasbord of food and one of their favorite foods is one of these guys because they're like six foot long and it's like a huge bratwurst sandwich. And they're really slow moving, way slower moving than fish. So the sharks can just grab them and eat them. But sharks have terrible eyesight, horrible eyesight, really good sense of smell, but mainly hearing. They got really, really sharp hearing. And this iguana's got a heart, you know, about the size of a small pear. And underwater, it's going boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom. You can hear it really, really well. It sounds like nothing else in the ocean. And the shark just zeroes right in on it and has lunch. Big problem for Mr. Iguana. I mean, Jerry and George are sitting there on the shore, and George goes in to get some food, and it's like, whoop! Jerry sees, oh, the shark just ate my brother. Oh, man, I'm so hungry. But if I go out and get something to eat, I'm going to die. If I sit here and don't go out to eat, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? So he does what no other animal, no other vertebrate, anything with a backbone, in the entire animal kingdom, he turns his heart off. Now think about this. Shuts it down, stops beating. Now the shark can't hear his heart. He goes swimming for up to 40 minutes with no heartbeat. 
just swimming around. And, oh, it sounds like the water. And he's swishing back and forth and swimming around. Then he comes crawling back up out of the water. He's got a nice full belly. And he dies. Because he forgot to evolve the ability to turn his heart back on. I mean, think about that. There would have to be hundreds, maybe thousands of changes in his DNA programming to allow his body to move blood and absorb oxygen and move things around and have the muscles work and have the lungs shut down and have the ability to, you know, on desires to turn off the heart and, and then to turn it back on again. And they all have to be in place all at the same time, all at once, all these changes. It's like changing a computer program with thousands of lines of code. And revolution has nothing but random changes to a book, like rearranging a few letters at random. It, it's, it's absurd to think all that could have, that one creature could have happened by chance. God does this so we will know he exists. Now, can you bring up the, uh, that file called the, um, the, the slime, slime Slug? I'm going to play this one. I've been making two and three minute videos, and this is one you know, of them. God told us to take dominion over creation in the book of Genesis. Turn the volume that means up. to study, understand, and control it. Now, why? Because we can learn so much from it. I mean, we can even learn from a slug. A slug, you say? Yeah. It turns out that there's a certain kind of slug that lives in Northern Europe that slugs, when they move, they leave a slime trail. It's just kind of a sticky, gooey, watery thing. You can actually see their trail as they're crawling along. Well, scientists started to study this slug from Europe, and they realized their slime is very, very elastic, which means you can stretch it and it'll snap back, and very, very sticky. Now, for years, scientists have used things like super glue to bind up wounds, uh, and they thought, it's a little toxic and it turns a little brittle. What we need is a really flexible glue that will stay sticky. And they discovered this slug slime and thought these has the perfect characteristics for glue. Now don't get too excited about, you know, having some slug slime slapped onto your cut because it takes a lot of slugs to form enough slime to fit the market. And, you know, slug slime farms aren't exactly practical because the slugs only exude this kind of slime when they're scared because they don't want birds. Like if a bird's flying overhead, out comes the sticky slug slime glue. And if the bird comes and tries to pull the slug off the sidewalk, it's stuck to the sidewalk. So the only way to get the sticky glue is to scare the slugs. And slug slime farms aren't exactly practical. I mean, you set up a movie theater, you put all your slugs on the seats, and you show them movies of scary birds, and then you scrape the slug slime sticky glue off the seats. I mean, not exactly practical. So what do they do? They figured out how to synthesize it. And we now have the formula for sticky slug slime glue that is currently being used to seal up wounds. Isn't that cool? because we figured out what God did first. So we can learn from creation, develop products that benefit us in a multitude of ways, even slug slime glue. What a slugger of an idea. So um, I started making these as a tool of putting that reality of God in other people. Now, two of my, there's four different creation devotionals. Um, the latest one, without excuse, and one of the earlier ones, Inspired Evidence, 
on about 10% of the pages, they have these little QR codes. You point your phone at them, and that's one of the videos. So you can read about it, and then you can watch it. And every couple weeks, if you sign up for my newsletter, and by the way, these things are free. They don't cost you anything. And they're putting the awe of God back in front of the people of the world around you. So you, you, um, you'll, if, you, if you go to these videos, and by the way, there's a sheet that has a whole bunch of different animals that have these QR codes out there on my table. Sign up for my newsletter. It comes four times a year. And all, or go to the internet site and sign up for these without a doubt videos. Every couple weeks you get a new video. You can just forward it to some friends. Just send it to, to your email list. And you're putting that reminder of how God's in front of, behind everything, in front of people. And they're just fun, interesting things about nature. Everybody loves nature or parts of our body or things that he's done. Now, I want to jump back in and do just a few more. Yeah, that, and that's, that's, that's the things. They don't cost anything. Just a few more examples. Um, I like this bird because he's not called the bar-tail evolution wit. He's the god wit. Now, this guy holds the world's record for non-stop migrational flight. Now, notice his long spindly legs. He's not like a seagull. He runs up and down along the seashore. And if he lands like in the middle of a lake or an ocean, he can't take back off again. He can't take off if he's sitting on water. He's got to take off from land. Well, it turns out he lives in the summer up here in Alaska. And as it gets colder and colder in the fall, he migrates all the way to New Zealand over 7,000 miles of open ocean. And it takes five to seven days. And then when the, um, when the winter's over, in the spring, he migrates along the, sea, along the coast back up to Alaska. But he does this 7,000-mile nonstop flight. There are no islands, no land, no nothing, nowhere to land for that whole flight. Now, scientists thought this is pretty cool, and we're pretty good at doing what we do, figuring out how creation operates. So they figured, they, they measured how much fat was on one of these birds, okay, before it had taken off. And then they know how many BTUs of energy are in each gram of fat. And they can also calculate how much energy does it take each time they swing their wings down and then raise them back up. And they did the math, and they discovered it was impossible for this bird to fly that far because it didn't have enough energy, didn't have enough fuel. It's like a plane that did, didn't gas up enough, and it just crash dives into the ocean. And it can't stop to rest, or it's going to die. So this was quite the conundrum. Uh, and they realized they had measured the fat before, like a few days before it took off instead of waiting until right before it took off. What happens is, for the last couple weeks, these birds eat and eat and eat and eat like at an unlimited smorgasbord, and they gain 55% in weight in just two weeks. It's like a 200-pound man weighing 350 pounds, at, you know, a week later, you know, two weeks later. It's like, so now they're like, now it's the birds like the Goodyear blimp. And it still doesn't fly very efficiently, and it still isn't going to make it because it's terrible aerodynamic shape. So then it takes all the water that's in that fat, and it eliminates it. Its body eliminates the water. So the fat becomes really concentrated, like super concentrated food. And right before it takes off, just a day or two before that, it shrivels up and flattens the rest of its organs. Its stomach becomes paper thin. Its intestines become paper thin. Its kidneys, no longer eating or drinking, become paper thin. And the fat then takes up all that space. Its whole body shrinks and becomes very streamlined. And now it's able to fly for 7,000 miles. Isn't that cool? 
think of all the programming changes needed. Other animals don't do that. And how does he even know where to go? The parents leave, and, and weeks later, the children leave. And they go exactly where they're supposed to go, to New Zealand, in the, a little dot in the middle of nowhere on the other side of the world. Just, it, it's, it's just all just incredibly awesome. Now, I want to end up talking about a creature that's really, really, really common. And we all know about it. It's a firefly. It makes light, okay? Now, now we've been able to simulate that. You see that just all of a sudden, something that wasn't glowing is giving off a blue light. Now, fireflies we're very familiar with, they give off a yellow light. But there are actually 40 different classifications, totally different kinds of creatures, totally different body structures, totally disconnected from the supposed evolutionary like lineage of creatures that all give off light by mixing chemicals together. Now, it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that a scientist figured out how you can mix what those chemicals are, and you have to keep them separated. So any creature that does this has two separate compartments that do two completely different things, and they're both totally useless unless they have a mechanism to bring those two chemicals together and have a, a, a layer that allows the light to get through and shine. So there's just a multitude of things that all have to happen. The scientist that discovered these two chemicals, he got to name them, and he called them luciferine and luciferess. Uh, anybody notice the root word there? Lucifer? Anybody? He's got a multitude of names in the Bible, just like God's got a multitude of names. Anybody know one of the other titles of Lucifer? Any guesses? Has to do with light? He's called the angel of light. Lucifer's given the name in the New Testament, the angel of light. Do not let the angel of light who rules over this world deceive you because he's out to kill, destroy, and lie. But he's called the angel of light. So that's what the guy named it after. He named these two chemicals that make light. So we find these creatures totally disconnected, all doing the same thing, but the chemicals aren't even the same. They have all different variations of those two, luciferine and luciferous. Now, whoops, I'm, I'm missing a bunch of slides. Bummer. Wow. Okay, I'm just going to have to describe them. I had pictures of a mushroom in the Amazon forest, a bunch of mushrooms. They're giving off this beautiful green light. I, I have pictures of plankton that wash up when waves wash onto shore. And when the wave hits the shore, it causes a little one-celled or microcellular organism to mix two chemicals together and glow a beautiful blue. And it's like you have blue spotlights covering the whole ocean shore where this happens. There's a creature um, called the um, dragonfish. It lives like 5,000 feet down in the ocean. There's not a photon of light that ever gets that low. And by the way, we're told that beauty is a result of evolution. Flowers are beautifully colored because it attracts uh, insects. Well, insects are colorblind, so it's all wrong. We're told peacocks have beautiful feathers because it allows the male to attract a female. Well, they did an experiment where they cut off all those feathers on a male peacock, sent her out in a field with a bunch of beautiful peacocks, and it didn't make any difference to the females. Beauty has nothing to do with function in most cases. And way down in the ocean, we find beautiful fish with gorgeous colors where no light ever reaches. Well, this fish has a little light bulb on a stalk, and the light comes on when it mixes the chemicals together. It attracts other fish, and then it gets its food. 
there are squid that are like a billboard with flashing colors of blue and green and orange and yellow, just changing and flashing and moving across its back, creating this beautiful pattern that changes and moves across its back as it swims along. And then there's these, these lightning bugs. Now I'm going to bring us full circle. God's message to Job was, you can just look at what I've made and you can see my care. You can see my intelligence. You can see my magnificent power. I'm not part of creation. I made creation. You can trust me, even when you're going through hard times. I mean, God put a light bulb on the butt of a bug. If God can put the light bulb on the butt of a bug, don't you think he can help you when you're in the midst of problems? Doesn't mean he's going to take them away immediately, but he might. God does answer prayer. But in the midst of it, he says, trust me. I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. This life is like a flash in the pan compared to eternity. Trust me. See, we are to be the children of light. We're going to have hope in the midst of our problems. We're going to have trusting of the one who made us in the midst of our problems. We're going to depend on him for comfort in the midst of our problems. The world doesn't have that. We're, they live in darkness. They live in despair. They live in trying to distract themselves with activities and entertainment and find meaning in things that will never find ultimate meaning. That's fantasy land. Our meaning comes from the one who made us and gives us purpose. Be sober, especially in a day when people are walking around in fantasiness. Put on faith and love, and not just a hope, but an assurance of salvation. Uh, and that kind of brings us full circle. Um, you know, how do we know we have faith? Because the one we have faith in rose from the dead. And there is a life that comes after this life, and we can know it. So I hope that helps with the awe, just in the midst of life, bringing back that awe, why this whole subject matters. Put these resources to use. Um, they're priced 10 items, 10 beautiful hardcover, full-color books for $70, $7 each. Um, we give these away in schools, and the donations I get go to buying the books and going on these trips to give away these books. And we can give away a book for $5 per student. And they get the salvation message at the end of every presentation. So thank you for listening, and I hope this helps, and I hope both sessions have put it in a bigger perspective. And if you can stay, we're going to talk about how do we fit all these human cultures into a time frame of about 4,500 years since the flood when everywhere around you you're going to hear how these cultures are so much older than that. So thank you. Yep. Yeah, so I'll give you just a few logistics as to uh, how lunch will work in just a moment. But uh, Bruce just did an incredible job here for both sessions. Uh, well done. And um, he mentioned repentance a couple of times, just real briefly. What is repentance? It is to change your mind. It is to be going in one direction and turn and go in the other direction. And that's what the gospel invites us to do is to come to the place where insights have been gained, uh, observations have been made, information has been shared, and Bruce, I agree with you, I cannot for the life of me come up with any other conclusion than the design of the world has to have a designer. The code writing of the world has to have, the code of the world has to have a code writer. Okay, it has to be. There's no other explanation. 
once you drill down and you see the detail of it. This morning, how does that tie to repentance, to change your mind? Can you come to Jesus with a smile on your face? Can you come because he showed you not just that, yeah, there's something wrong with my relationship with him, it's broken, but I see the beauty of the world, I'm immersed in it, the, 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 the dance of a bee, the, the, the shine of a firefly, uh, the suction cup of a fish. God, can I come to you with a smile on my face? You can. Sometimes we come broken. We, we know we've hurt. We've hurt others and we've been hurt and we want to cry and that's good and that's part of repentance too. But it's not just the only aspect of repentance. Repentance is recognizing, God, I want to go in a new direction. And maybe in something he shared here this morning, there's something in you that says, I want that. I want this connection with creator God. I want to start understanding my worldview through a biblical lens that will help me interpret all the data such that I, it leads me to cast my gaze. And my blinded eyes can be opened to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. So that's the invitation this morning. I'm going to pray with you just a moment. And if that's where you're at, repentance, change your mind, come to him and let him uh, begin a journey with you and you with him. So if you um, have been around here for the last couple of weeks, if you signed up for a lunch, there's a lunch for you on the back table after we dismiss. So you can go back and grab your lunch and come on back in. I've uh, just invited Bruce to take however much time he needs um, for lunch, and then if he wants to eat quickly and start 10, 15 minutes from now, that's up to him. Uh, but I think that's the plan. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. So, Okay, so if you signed up, um, go get your lunch and come back in, and 10, 15 minutes, he'll start back up. If you did not sign up for lunch, you can still stay. You don't have to eat, okay, and then just hang around. If you want to go up Ligonier, grab you something and come back, that's great. And then I think Barb even uh, ordered a few extras. And so uh, if you'd like to stay and um, would like a lunch but didn't plan that way, I think there's a few extras. Just see Barb and she'll set you up, okay? And as long as we have the extras. I don't know how many extras there are. but All right. So you have been an incredible congregation this morning. And if you just bow with me in prayer, I'm going to dismiss you. So, Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you so much for just the invitation of seeing life in the awe and wonder of God. Thank you for witnesses like Job and Paul and others who testify the greatness of your creation. And we truly are without excuse. And so we thank you, Lord, for this information, and now we know that you want us to take that transformational step of allowing you to come into our life, to be able to encounter and know personally and walk with in a close, intimate, personal relationship the creator of the universe. And that's what we want for everybody here this morning. And so may we come into your kingdom, not with our heels set, and not just with uh, the, um, all the past weighing us down, but may we come in with a smile on our face that says yes to you and the beauty of who you are and the newness of life you, you bestow. We ask all these things in your strong name. Amen. All right, stand with me. Uh, greet somebody.